Recovery Radio, where we discuss substance abuse treatment and recovery. You can listen live at blogtalkradio.com forward slash OCG Radio. Please note that the views and opinions of our hosts and guests are not necessarily the views of OCG, nor is it meant to replace professional advice or the advice of your physician. And now, here's our show, Roach on Recovery, with your host, Orville Roach. Welcome back, folks. Happy New Year from OCG Radio. Not sure why this song is playing so long, but actually we do know. Mr. Producer, are you on the line? Certainly am. You want to cut that song? Uh, it normally I, normally doesn't play like that, like continuous. It normally cuts off at a certain point. Uh, or at least yeah, that's what I it mean, sounds like. Yeah, no, it played. It played for its normal its normal duration. We just usually start talking over it because we don't need to listen to it that long. We're getting tired of it. Okay, so let's. Uh, I welcomed everybody back to OCG Radio, of course. Um, 646-564-9909 is the number. Happy New Year, Mr. Producer. Uh, it's our first show of the new year. Absolutely. Happy 2018 to you and to all the listeners as well. Let's hope it's a, it's a, good, it's a good one for everybody. Yep. So let's start off by telling everybody what happened. <laughs> I, I don't know if that's the way we want to start the show, else we uh, sink again. Well, well whatever uh, happens, we'll, happens. We'll deal with it. We'll say Blog uh, Talk is at it again. So we got we got cut off before we even got started, and um, had to end up actually deleting the show and then rebooting another one very quickly. Um, so, anyone who goes to listen to the well, I can go in and edit when we're done and put the, the proper description back in. But right now, it won't show a description. It'll just just say we're rebooting. First of all, does my mic sound okay? Uh, I'm gonna say you sound. It sounds okay. It sounds a little um, murky. I don't know if there's any better way to describe that. 
like very kind of deep, um, a lot maybe a lot of bass or something. So it's not as clear as it usually sounds. But I hear no uh, nothing crazy in the background. It's not picking up any kind of background noise, so it's clean in that sense. Well, let me move it further away from my mouth. How's that? Yeah, it sounds a little better. All right. Well, I'll, the truth will be when I listen to it, and, and I'll know. But I tested this one out. Yes, it's another mic I'm testing. Um, and the playback sounded pretty good, so I'm surprised it doesn't sound clear. Uh, you know, up to, clear. Up to, the standard, up to the standards that we have set. It's just, yeah, a lot of, uh, you sound like Barry White right now, you know what I mean? So unless unless you oh, woke that, up. <laughs> that may be related to another subject, which I'll cover. <laughs> oh, okay, all right. Hey, I was going to, unless you woke up with, all of a sudden became the world's most infamous baritone, uh, then there, there's something mic-related. But no, other than that, it sounds clean, uh, no static, and I'm not picking up anything in the background. So we sound good on all of the fronts. All right. Um, hopefully you can get your, uh, normal NSA folk to give us a quick thumbs up, but yeah, I will. I will indeed. So our last show, um, we, we had again, technical difficulties of getting knocked off the server. And I think, you know, getting knocked off the server is one issue. But I think what bothers me more is not getting knocked off is that you don't just get knocked off and then get the message that you've been you're knocked off. So you because once you get the message, that there's been a network server error that then allows you to get back on. Right. So but in the meantime, what, what has happened is you get we can figure out that we've been knocked off because we can we stop hearing each other. And then, you know, it seems like a long period of time to us it may not actually be but it seems like it is before i mean there's nothing we can do there's nothing we can do in the studio you know we have to wait for an error message to come and then it asks you do you want to hey see it says we notice you've been knocked off the server in the middle of the show <laughs> do you want to continue right right and yeah, like, yeah, and nice. sometimes that error message comes like three minutes after you've actually been knocked off yeah, but so, it's like 30 minutes sometimes. Yeah, right? So we might be in full conversation, and all of a sudden I'll get a text from a previ- aforementioned uh, NSA folk saying, uh, what happened to you guys? Haven't heard you guys for the past five minutes. And we're chugging along thinking we're providing quality entertainment for folks. And this was on December 12th that that happened. That was our last show. So we're over a month over. And I wrote to them, I said, hello, we experienced multiple network errors again during our show, kicking me off and not allowing me back in. This went on for about 20 minutes. So if you remember last show, it happened multiple times. Mm-hmm. We continued to have issues all the way through the end, even after we finally got back on as it was kicking callers off, etc. So they responded so nicely three days later on December 15th saying, um, hi there, we're very sorry for the troubles you've, ex- troubles you've experienced on the site. We experienced a server issue that caused some of the host services to not load or become unresponsive. 
This issue has since been resolved. Please let us know if you continue to experience troubles and we'll be glad to help. So I don't know what the hell is going on. All I know is we went, what did we go, like two and a half years with no problems? It was a pretty good run. It was a pretty good run for sure. And then all of a sudden, you know, starting July of 2017, you know, it's like this bug came back in. But we'll see. So that's the news from Blog Talk. Uh, hit, hit hit me up on my uh, my news my news uh, sound clip. I got some. Do we news. need a little? And this is going to be our first soundbite drop of 2018, by the way. Which I was uh, telling the host right before the show, it looked like some stuff that was supposed to be loaded hadn't even made it. So uh, no, let's give yep. this one a shot. <laughs> All right, so, all right, we're good there. So I hope that doesn't sound that loud to, and I can't figure out, unfortunately, how to turn the volume down on this headset, and I'm not going to try it midstream, lest I <laughs> kick myself <laughs> yeah. off. Yeah, no, don't do that. And yes, that was uh, quite loud and abrasive. It gave me a good start here in the chair over on the uh, Redwood City side of things. Okay, all right, I hope it didn't startle the listeners. So... As you all know, um, I think I've mentioned on a number of occasions that I've been blessed and fortunate just by the stroke of the stars and the the alignment of the universe to uh, have been born in a third world nation. And as a result, be blessed and fortunate to have a third world immune system. That's right. And so uh, as a result... Though they may try, I rarely get sick. Um, But the viral authorities, as they may be, saw fit to uh, conspire against me starting last Wednesday evening to uh, knock me to my knees (laughs) for Wednesday evening, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. Only to uh, finally the immune system put its heel on it and uh, start the process of eradicating it. What it was, what it is, I'll have to leave it to the experts, my wife, uh, who named it the Australian flu. I don't know what that is. I don't care what that is. Uh <laughs> all I have to, all, all, all I have to say to the Australian flu, if that's what it was, that unfortunately for you, you have now been registered in my system and you can never touch me again. <laughs> that's right. That's right. We we've now built the immunity to it. Thanks for uh, depositing more information into the hard drive. Now, the the one good thing for me, even though it did take me out, is that. Uh, Unlike most, I don't suffer the normal side effects like a flu side effect. Uh, what where, where it, it see these things are very smart. They kind of know what your weaknesses are, and yeah. what you, and so like for example, I'm not a person who suffers from headaches rarely, if ever. So it knew this is how we get them. Hit them with the headache, the migraine <laughs> like headache. That will get me. so it knew to get me that way. 
Not the usual way it gets people with the flu. So for about three days, that's what was keeping me on my back was that. I couldn't even raise my head up because every time I was like, oh, God. But that went away on Saturday. I was like, I got you. Then I had to fight. Then I had to fight the humans. (laughs) Uh, Right. I.e. the wife. The wife. You know, the ones who take care of you when you're not well. And then, of course, when you're not well... You, and you and you and you're living, you know, in a house of women. You know, they talk about you as if you can't hear. Unfortunately for them, being having gypsy blood, they talk loud. So even when they're trying to talk quiet, it's loud for a normal person, whereas their normal talking is yelling for a normal person. So when they're talking, and as I'm convalescing in the back. They're talking about me as if I'm ready to expire from the earth (laughs) and and saying things like, oh, my God, he can't get sick. Oh, man. What's wrong with him? I've never seen him like this. You think he's going to pull through? (laughs) And, you know, when you're like that, you have to conserve all of your energy. So, like, don't talk to me. Don't ask me questions. Don't, certainly don't make me repeat myself because that takes a lot of energy. But it took all of my energy to not laugh. Listening to them whisper, as they might think, amongst themselves. Right, right. Um, but I have to call this the 20-year flu because the last time I experienced something like this was when after Chelsea went to kindergarten, so I know she brought something back foreign into the home. But uh, so I'm good for about another 20 years. There you go. That's not bad. That's not bad. A lot of people would uh, would make that trade in a heartbeat. So that kind of uh, circling around. Long story short, that's why my voice is the way it sounds. It's a little deeper than normal. It's um, a little Barry White esque. A little Barry White esque. <laughs> Uh, as I'm still recovering And you may hear some sniffles And I may have to clear my throat But other than that I'm back on my feet Ready to roll Ready to roll Okay, okay, I like it Alright, well uh, uh, We'll move right along There's something interesting I've been waiting to Bring to the table in this segment So interested to get your feedback Okay Uh, first and foremost, there are only two two games, I guess, at this point to discuss. So this segment will be rather quick. But did you catch anything other than the highlights of the ending to the Saints and Vikings game? I was actually watching the whole game, and after the field goal was kicked by the Saints, turned off the TV. Oh, man. Only to find out oh, no. about <laughs> 1 o'clock in the morning – and and they're talking about uh, some miraculous play at the end of the game. And I'm like, <laughs> yeah. what the hell? Yeah. And it took me like 30 minutes to find a replay. I had to go on YouTube. 
to find it. Yeah, it was uh, obviously, uh, as I'm sure the listeners know too at this point, they are aware of both yours and my rooting interests, and so neither of us had a proverbial dog in the fight, as it were, in that game. But as my wife was in the kitchen pairing dinner or whatever she might have been doing, and I'm watching this game, uh, that play takes place, and you know she hears me responding like when I'm watching one of my own teams, and I'm just sitting in the living room like, oh, my God, like I cannot believe what I just saw. Uh, that ending was... I, I don't know. Uh, it was it was incredible, and it left my jaw dropped. Uh, like you, once that field goal was kicked, I just you know thought to myself, well, yeah, there it is. So so the Saints will be um, fighting for a chance to represent the NFC in the Super Bowl, and that ending was really was really quite something. Was really quite something. So. Um, you know, whatever, just, just interesting, right? A play like that might, that, that's once in a 20, 20 year, once in a 30 year kind of play yeah. um, for an ending like that to unfold. But uh, most importantly, or more importantly, what I wanted to get your input on uh, as I am listening on the radio while I'm driving to what sounded to be the dismantling of the Pittsburgh Steelers by the Jacksonville Jaguars come to find out they made a game of it. And it was a three point game at the end, but um, something rang to me and I said, I can't wait to, to pick Orville's brain about this because we've got the Patriots in the AFC championship game again. And I don't believe that's a surprise to anybody, but their opponent in the Jacksonville Jaguars is built very, very, very similarly to one New York football Giants who ended up beating the Patriots a couple of times when it counted because they are a team that is boasting the best defense in the NFL. Uh, they are a team that gets after the quarterback. But as I was drawing these comparisons in my mind to the New York Giants and quarterback pressure and a really, really strong defense to this Jacksonville Jaguars team, there was one uh, fatal flaw, you could call it, with the Jaguars or one major component where the comparison cannot be drawn. And I'd like to put it to you to see if you can guess where my mind went with that one thing. Uh, I don't know if your mind went there, but to me there's two places where there's a fatal two fatal flaws. Uh, So one is at the quarterback position. That is the number one thing that popped into my mind where I had to draw a major difference between the correlation of the Giants and their dominant defense to the Jaguars is that on the other side of the ball, the Giants had Eli Manning. The Giants had a poised, proven Pro Bowl caliber quarterback where the Jaguars do not. And that to me, and I don't know what you'll say the number two thing is, but that to me is the huge red flag. This this Jaguars defense is the real deal. Granted, 
that can't be it's not a a great argument to pick after they give up 42 points to the Steelers but that's looking at it in a one game window you look at it over the course of the the context of the entire season they're the number one rated defense in the NFL so they're a team built to win on the back of their defense as the Giants were but the the quarterback is going to be the killer in, in my opinion uh so you guessed it right off the bat but what was your number two um, my number two was uh, the receiving core, um, but um, the thing is, remember when the Giants met the Patriots, they were they were meeting in the Super Bowl, so they were meeting in a neutral place, right? Not in Foxborough, even though the Jets beat them up in Foxborough. But um, the, it's the same. They had a guy on from the New York Giants who said the same thing, and they were making the same argument. And he's the one who said, you're exactly right, except one thing. We had Eli. They have Blake Bortles. However, That's let me right. close with this. Let me close with this. Um, everybody's going to say the same thing about what they said with the Titans. If Don't beat yourself, because the Patriots aren't going to beat themselves. And the Titans, it just snowballed. They started... Costly penalties, beating themselves, and then it just snowballed out of control. And that's what happens to people. But at the very least, the Jaguars have, I mean, they said the Titans had a good defense. But let's say the Jaguars have a great defense. Well, maybe they can prevent it from snowballing out of control. But it sure would help them if they had a, a, a just a notch-up level quarterback. Right. But I'll, I'll leave it at that. Yeah, yeah, no, that's a, that's a good place to leave it. You, you, you and I, our minds went to the same place with that because I was just thinking uh, how these teams, were, the teams that have given the Patriots problems in the past, are the teams that are built on their defense first, and not just a good defense, but like a dominant two, you know, two thousand yeah. Baltimore Ravens, uh, New York Giants, two thousand seven, I believe that was, uh, w- where they're built to win on the back of their defense. And, um, but yeah, not having Eli Manning, that's, that's a huge. The Giants, neither Giants Super Bowl team had the secondary that this Jaguars team has. What the Giants had, what the, what the the Giants have, in my opinion, and which is how they compensated for not having an outstanding secondary was their pass rush. So, I won't say the Jaguars have the same level of pass rush. They have a very good pass rush, but the Giants had a great pass rush. And so if you put a very good and a, and a very good secondary, they have a chance. Let's see. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Tied to seeing the damn Patriots. Yeah, I think uh, everybody, <laughs> everybody is feeling that way. So anyway, all right, well, g- great place to leave it. Good place to leave it. You want to – shall we dive into the first topic of 2018? Let's dive in. I got a question for you. Let's do it. So tell our listeners, we'll call this the personal perspectives part of the topic. Uh, when did you first, in connection to or in relation to your uh, um, experience with uh, drugs and whatnot, when did you experience that peer pressure? 
Oh, that's a great question. That's a great question, and I don't just want to throw out an answer without giving it some some credibility and some thought. I guess I would have to say high school um, in no uncertain terms. And I'll let me preface this by saying it was an internal peer pressure put on myself. And what I mean by that was there was nobody on the outside that pressured me directly into doing something or trying something or acting a certain way because that was going to, you know, make me cool or make me better than, um, it was more about how I perceived other people to perceive me. And so putting this kind of internal peer pressure on myself to say, this is a certain way I want to act, or I need to act because this is the light that I want to be seen in, if that makes any sense. Um, because, and kind of an interesting spin. I was uh, looking forward to this topic when you had given me the idea the other day was as far as peer pressure is concerned in that lifestyle. And even in treatment, I was always the individual that other people looked to follow, or I was the person that other people seeked approval from. So I I was on the, the side of the influencer versus the influenced, if that makes any sense. It does. It does. So that would be that. That's kind of my stance on it. That the only peer pressure, the only time I ever felt that uh, was probably around the high school years, and that was from an internal stance. Uh, what what I wanted to put out into the the stratosphere to to the atmosphere. Um, to make sure that I influenced the way people saw me, but no direct pressure from peers to be a certain way. Okay. So it was very internally driven for me or with me. What about, what was your experience with that? I, uh, for the, fortunately, you know how we have an unwritten philosophy called, Titled, to be aware is to be alive. That's right. That's like your favorite one. You also know that there is an old saying uh, called or titled, ignorance is bliss. <laughs> okay, yeah. Okay, so I was uh, the opposite of to be aware is to be alive although I wasn't threatened with not being alive, but I think I would have fallen under the ignorance is bliss because I was totally oblivious to my surroundings at a certain point. So I knew some of my peers were smoking weed and the elders in the area were smoking weed, whatnot. You know, when I say elders, I mean, you know, they were three, four, five years older than us, right? So the next group up, Right, um, and there were times, especially like when I was sixteen, seventeen in the summer, when we would before we play basketball or after we finished playing basketball, everybody would be congregating on the benches around the courts, and you know they'd be smoking and drinking going on, and I'd just be sitting there, and they would pass the joint around me, 
or sometimes I, you know, if if I didn't want them constantly reaching around me, I would just I would be t- holding a conversation in one direction, grabbing it in one hand, and just passing it like behind my back, you know, to yeah. my over to my left while I'm talking to the person to my right. Sure. The other person is just grabbing it from me. And when I say ignorance is bliss, I wasn't even aware that this is going on. I'm not aware that I'm actually like I'm not aware in the moment that I'm passing a a, a joint. You know what I mean? Right, right, right. I'm just pa- I'm just passing something that's just in the way of my conversation at the moment. Okay. <laughs> sure. And, and, sure. And and I'm sure the others are saying, "Dude, you're in the way of what we're doing. <laughs> what you're doing. What we're doing." And so right. somehow, either instinctively, I just, you know, started just passing it around myself. Okay. And I guess in some way that allowed me to maintain a presence, you know, on the bench, quote unquote. And there, at that moment in time, there existed no peer pressure. No one said, hey, come on, man, why don't you try something? Nobody said any of that. It was like almost unspoken that, you know, he didn't get high. Just, you know, stop wasting it. Go around him. Right, right, right. And, well, what the hell, what the hell changed? We're, so we're, what, you know, boom, boom, boom. Well, come to find out, well, what changed was me. What changed was me. And once that change occurred, which wasn't a good one, okay, the peer pressure comes into play now because now you've opened yourself up. I've opened myself up because of other things not happening, and there's no one else to blame but myself, just decisions that you make that you don't realize it's going to send you down a certain road. Mm-hmm. And we used, we talk all the time in the program. We talked about this all the time when I was going through treatment about you know the the need to be accepted, acceptance. So that's kind of once you, once that that need is created, you know, within you, and you go for it, and it's a negative choice or a negative thing. You're now in that loop, and then now you're subjected to that negative peer pressure if you want to stay in that loop, in that loop, in that group, whatever you want to call it. If you want to stay in there, then you're now subjected to that peer pressure. And I always tell people, just as me personally, people used to say, hey, have you ever tried heroin? Have you ever tried this? you ever tried that? And my answer is always those things weren't available to me in my surroundings. So I can't sit here and say that if they weren't there, that I would not have tried them. I, you know, I ended up using what was available in my, you know, around in my peer group. Mm-hmm. Now, in hindsight, I'm glad that certain things didn't come into the, into the, into, into our area and into the group. You know what I mean? So I guess that's a blessing you can look at, but I cannot certainly say that I, if that wasn't there, that I wouldn't have used it. Who, who can say that? Right. Because I remember like it was yesterday, me saying to myself, I'm, oh, I'm, not, I'm never going to smoke marijuana. 
I'm never going to do cocaine. I'm never going to do crack. I remember saying this out loud. <laughs> wow. That, and, I, and I chuckle because you and I have uh, a huge similarity um, in that specifically uh, because addiction, for, you know, to use the term loosely, ran in my family. And with my mom particularly, who to this day uh, is in her addiction and struggling. And so I was raised by my grandparents, right? Her parents. And I remember, just like you, out loud, saying those things out loud to my grandparents. Like, why would I ever drink or smoke or do any of these things Like when I know, A, you're not supposed to, and B, I can see how it's affected my own mom. So, like, I'm, I'm never going to do any of those things and can remember just like you verbalizing that out loud and saying, you know, there's no way and not just saying it, but truly believing it, feeling that as I was saying it, um, you know, I've got the perfect example right in front of my face as to why I'm not going to do those things. So that's, uh, interesting that we have that similarity there. My, my New York brethren will know what I'm talking about when I say this. In the 80s, the newspapers, when, when Kane hit the city, it didn't sneak in. It hit like, a, you know, like, a, like an army regiment coming in. Yeah. And, and the newspapers used to be, used to have stories just plastered over the front pages of people, you know, trying at one time and getting addicted. You know, it was devastating people and communities. Throughout sure. the city. This is when that whole like mass migration of people trying to get into treatment started. Because it took you down. Most people, and and this again, it's a blessing in disguise. Most people it took down very quickly. Whereas you know traditional cocaine, you know people would be out there for fifteen, twenty years, right? Right. But but um, the newspaper clippings and the front page headlines and we would read them as like damn i never try next stuff one time and you're addicted hell no (laughs) right what when when you find yourself there when you find yourself there in your in your uh singular moments you're by yourself and you think back and you're retracing your steps how did i get to this point you can, it's crystal clear to you how you got there. Now, it doesn't mean at that moment in time you, you have the wherewithal to do anything to extricate yourself, but you're, you're, you have a, a keen awareness of how, how, how I got here. Um, one of the reasons peer pressure is, is an interesting phenomenon, especially in a treatment environment. You got it rears its head in different ways. Of course, we, you know, on the the program folk, what we want to, we are aware of the negative peer pressure. We want to focus, however, on generating as much positive peer pressure as possible. The dynamics, especially in a residential program the dynamics play out very interestingly mm-hmm. um, at, at various times. And 
when you're in a facility of 250 and it took me a while, but I eventually figured out why large treatment facilities are better able to deal with negative peer pressure than small ones. It's just, it's just, it's just math. Yeah. Yeah. So, and we'll, let's use our facility as an example. If it can hold 32 people, you at the, at the minimum, you want there to be a 50% threshold, meaning you want 50% of your clients to be on the positive side of the fence. By the way, Mr. Producer, there's a lot of uh, um, background, I'll just call it wind noise, but I don't know if, it's, if you're close to the mic and you're breathing or whatever, just a lot of background noise from your side. Huh, interesting. Okay, okay. Um, it's gone now, or it stopped. Um, so you want 50% to be on the positive side of the fence. And then that leaves you 25% that are on the fence and then 25% that are absolutely have no interest in, in, in treatment. And they've just been ordered here by the court. But they're not ready yet. So the 50% that are on the positive side focus their energy on moving that 25% that's on the fence, off the fence, onto their side. And then that gives them 75% to now overwhelm the remaining 25% that have no interest. So they're, they're only interested in, in causing trouble, violating rules, et cetera, et cetera. And so you overwhelm them with positive energy, with accountability, with confrontation about their behavior, et cetera, et cetera. And the hope is that you eventually, over time, will pull them from that where they are to the fence and then over the fence. That's the hope. And that's the struggle. And it's an ongoing struggle. Now, what I just described is the ideal scenario. Now, this ideal scenario is more prevalent when you're in a larger facility. So if you think of like uh, the old Daytop Swan Lake, which held 250 people, well, I can remember from my own experience, the overwhelming majority of people were about doing their business, about doing their recovery. And so there was no issue with overwhelming any negativity that was, you know, might have been percolating in pockets and what have you. There was no issue with, with dealing with that because you had numbers, uh, you know, working in your favor. So one of the things that we're kind of experiencing this now, but we've experienced this you know, many times over the years, when you're dealing with a smaller number of people, that math equation starts to work against you. And you, I, Mr. Producer, if you, you could share with everybody, aren't you working on becoming a, a damn rocket scientist or something? 
<laughs> Something like that. I am uh, okay. I am four semesters away from completing a bachelor's in science degree of applied mathematics. Okay, so yeah, some, something like that. Um, so you can, I'm sure you can have an affinity for th- this math equation that when you get down to, let's say, you only have 15 people, well, it's a total different dynamic. Even if the, e- the equation, the fraction remains the same, it's a lot more difficult for uh, five people, let's use thirds, right? Or uh, if there's five out of the 15 that are dedicated to their recovery and working at it on a daily basis, and then five are on the fence, and then five are about doing everything except their recovery. Well, those five are meeting up against an equal pressure. And you have to be special people, if you're one of those five, to not only withstand the pressure coming back against you, but to overcome it, to even pull any of those five people that are on the fence over to your side to start to change that equation. And what we have seen over the years is that sometimes, let's use those five people as an example that are on the positive side, sometimes those five people have been very special people and have succeeded in their task because they were told your task, a part of your recovery process is to uh, try and pull people over that fence. Not only, even as you're working on keeping yourself on that positive side of the fence, also working to peers over to that side of the fence. And one of the reasons why we reinforce that is because it's just exercising and practicing that process of, um, you know, never giving up on somebody, uh, being a role model. Uh, these are things you're going to have to be when you're out there living your life as a, as a you know, person in recovery. Because um, you're going to come across people that are, you know, on the fence or, you know, need to be in recovery, but their attitude is not about that, you know, and you're going to have to know how to uh, deal with them. Um, Because we certainly don't want people thinking, well, I'll just avoid them or I'll never encounter people like that. Trust me, that ain't going to be the case. I mean, you're going to have people like that in your own family, okay? So you're going to have to develop the means of dealing with those those pressures that are going to come back towards you. And there's been times when we've had those five on the other side, on the positive side of the fence, and it took everything that they had to just maintain their own recovery process. Pressure was so great against them. Imagine that. If, you, you know, if there's 15 people, there's 10 because the ones on the fence aren't helping you. You know what I'm saying? Right, exactly, they're, right. They're, they're just like existing in the universe at this moment, but they're not helping you. They're not necessarily hurting you, but they're not making it any easier to sway the equation. But those five, those five are working overtime. And it becomes, can the other five match the intensity 
the dedication, the stick to that the negative energy exhibits. And if not, overcome that. It happens, Which, but sometimes it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a life, figuratively and, and actually literally too, a life or death struggle that is occurring within the confines of the treatment environment with these energy levels, positive and negative. And then what, what do you call, uh, Mr. Uh, nuclear Physicist, uh, what do you call when there's just zero energy, not, neither positive or negative? What is that? Uh, technically, that doesn't exist. Okay. So, as we said, those people aren't existing. They're just uh, out of space <laughs> right. somewhere. <laughs> right. Exactly. That's pretty funny. That's exactly true. It's exactly accurate. And then the, another thing, like a nuance to point out with all this, is that kind of like you said, so it's gonna, you're going to have to be persistent and it's going to be difficult to continue to battle against that negative energy. And I think something else that needs to be considered is that for those people who are negative or are not sold in on their recovery yet or are uh, on the wrong side of the fence, I think as we were just stating, the challenge for the people who are trying to get it is that it doesn't take any effort to be on the wrong side of the fence, um, if you know what I mean by that. It's like... Mm -hmm. You don't have to try to be negative. If you don't want to get it, you're just placed somewhere temporarily and you just do whatever you want to do. That doesn't take a lot of effort. There's not a lot of trying involved with that. You just exist and tell everybody where they can go and that's the end of it. Um, however, on the flip side of that, to try and make that change, to try and do something different does take sacrifice. It does take hard work. It does take persistence. And so by default of you being on the right side of the fence, you're already putting in more work than the person uh, on the wrong side of the fence is quote unquote, putting in to be negative. They, they, they just get to do that freely. You could wake up and do that without thought. And so you're already trying, you're already putting in more effort to do what you want to do than they are. And then on top of that, you're battling them. So it makes it kind of doubly hard. Yep. The the person, the negative peer pressure, you're absolutely right. It doesn't require a lot to sit in that space, but their impact can be seismic mm -hmm. the environment. Um, and when they are in concert, meaning when they become aware of each other, right, the the energies they work the same in terms of how they come together. So when a, a person who is not has no interest in recovery or they're, they're just not there yet, and they connect with another person who is of like mind and spirit at that moment, and they connect with another and so on and so on, you know they their energy becomes emboldened. And so their impact becomes more, you know, uh, exponentially more powerful. However, the ones on the positive side of the fence have to, because like you said, you, uh, let's repeat that. 
it almost requires little energy to remain in that state of negativity. Mm-hmm. Right? It's just <laughs> it's like matter. It's just existing. <laughs> so you, That's you right. Do you don't have to do anything, okay? But just your mere existence creates, you know, uh, a seismic activity with, throughout the program. But those on the positive side of the fence have to exert a lot of energy to do two things. To actuate their positive energy, number one. So they can, you know, they can experience it in their mind, but they, they, they actuate it through their deeds and what they're doing in the house and all that stuff. And then they're also, at the same time, so they're not existing in a vacuum by themselves. They have to now overcome another energy that's working against them. Mm-hmm. So, and the funny thing is, and I just thought about this, the, the, the persons on the negative side aren't actively saying and thinking to themselves that they have to overcome those on the positive. They're that's not right. not thinking and saying that. It's only those on the positive side that are saying, well, you know what? I got to maintain my positive attitude, but I got to also conquer this negativity that's going on in this house. So they have to, you know, have like double output just to stay afloat. That's right. That's so true. While the negative crew is sitting back with their cigars and their uh, evening evening smoke jackets, <laughs> that's right. Yeah, exactly. They just because they, they're not concerned about what's going on. They're just doing what it is they want to do. But yeah, the other the other side is consciously battling you and the energy that you're putting out. Right. Um. So. When we see this, as this plays out, you know, as a staff person, there's the, our only, the only thing for us to do, obviously, and maybe it's obvious, I don't know, is to, you know, stand behind the positive energy in the house and provide that support to keep them going. Because obviously, if they succumb to the negative peer pressure um, in terms of their attitude and their, and their 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 thinking, you know, what's the use? They're not going to change. I'm not having any impact. You know, those type of thoughts start entering the mind. Then you're going to actuate those thoughts. Right. Um, and we want to support, and you know, sometimes our support is needed more or less, depending. Again, it all depends on the group. You know, there's some years we have to get a strong group. Some years we don't have a group as strong, and they need more support to withstand the pressure. Um, the ultimately. Positive peer pressure must prevail. There's no ifs, ands, or buts. There's no other answer. There's no other way. Positive peer pressure must prevail. Now, 
how is that to be? How, how is that going to manifest itself? Because the reality is, it, it, you know, whether or not it prevails is dependent on the humans, okay, that are charged with that responsibility. Well, that's an outside-looking-in kind of view. Inside-looking-out, in truth, there's really no way for them to fail. As long as they're not, they don't give up on themselves. Because how many times have we told people, clients, who are going through rough periods in the house and felt, um, what's the word? Uh, all right, let's say overwhelmed with the negativity. And they were like at their wits' end in terms of their, you know, their ability to push back. They were outnumbered, outgunned. And we would say, your only responsibility is to be consistent. Ultimately, all you're doing is practicing and exercising what the very same process that you're going to have to utilize when you leave treatment. When you leave, yep. So it's ultimately it becomes, or we're trying to avoid, my hands are in quotes, air quotes, the outcomes trap. Oh, if I don't pull anyone over to the, my side of the fence, or if I haven't, or if we haven't, and we, if we weren't successful in, in, in you know, changing the equation, we failed. No, you haven't failed. The only time you have air quotes, failed, is if you give up. You don't, become, you don't remain consistent. Because ultimately, that's all that you need to be, is consistent. Because I can't control what you do, you can't control what I do, okay? But what you can control is you're, you're not accepting any be- negative behavior. And ultimately, what's going to happen is you know, this group, you, others, will move on, okay? And you'll look back at your experience, and, and it may have been a difficult period for you going through treatment under those circumstances, okay? But you, you gutted it out. I think we spoke on in a previous show a long, long time ago how, you know, no, you, you don't know what the experience is going to be when you land in treatment at that mm-hmm. moment in time, whether it's going to be a, you know, a joyous experience throughout or a difficult experience throughout. You have no idea because there are a lot of variables that come into play. The other people that are present, you know, you and just the environment. And, you know, each group that cycles through creates their own flavor and own environment and whatever that is that you're you get dropped into you then have to adapt cope facilitate it and get through it but you can't allow the negative peer pressure to Squeeze you to the point, and, and by the way, we didn't mention this. We have seen, <laughs> oh goodness, 
this is a crazy description or analogy, but it's almost like, um, I don't know, in the animal kingdom, you know, you know, something getting poached, you know, like a lion, you know, poaching the calf out of the, out of the herd. Uh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. You know, we, we've had some on the positive side get poached. True. <laughs> you know, That's true. Out of the positive herd and dragged onto the negative side. You know what I mean? Although I might argue, although I think what you said is mostly true, that anyone who is poached onto the other side or is even quote unquote poachable, to use the term, uh, instead of maybe being cemented on one side or the other, is more a part of the group that is on the fence. Right, they got their pants legs stuck on the fence, so they didn't get dragged fully. <laughs> the lions right. weren't able to get them fully into the into the brush. Um, and the uh, the other uh, the the the, uh, the elderly buffalo are now just surrounding them, but they're still stuck on the gate. Yeah. Um, but it happens. It happens. But. <clears throat> Peer pressure is something else. Um, no, no one is uh, immune uh, to it. Um, when I say immune to it, I don't mean its impact, but in terms of just feeling it. Uh, now, how people deal with it is what separates them. That's what separates them. And the thing about addicts is... We can all kind of, we all kind of have a common thread in terms of where our stories kind of come together and Mm -hmm. then go apart into the details. Okay. And all, you know, all the, everyone's details might be, you know, different, but there's a, there's like a common, for most of us, there's this common little link that we have of where, where we, we, we kind of gotten, you know, whatever the driving cause was we ultimately sucked in okay and at some point there was pressure brought to bear that was negative that just helped facilitate (laughs) that sucking process uh even more and we weren't able to uh withstand it but we survived (laughs) We do, as we often do. Um, so we have to sit or stand and watch today's clients, you know, go through this process and uh, oftentimes I don't think they're even aware until we kind of broach the subject of this struggle that even goes on in the treatment environment and that to name what these struggles are of these different pressures, you know what I mean? That are brought to bear by different, for lack of a better term, factions in the house. And the positive faction has to, uh, has to and will win out. It's just a matter of how much how much does that group have to endure 
and do they have it in them? It's the make or break test, but I think you said it best kind of when we were first getting into the topic that even though in the treatment environment, having people on, on the negative side is maybe not the most conducive to change, it does provide a platform to give the ultimate kind of test because, like you said, in the real world, there are going to be such tests. And if the whole kind of idea or concept behind the therapeutic community is to, you know, create an environment that's nurturing and is conducive to change, it's also to create an environment of um, something that's very realistic, that's applicable to the real world, so anything that you faced in treatment has prepared you for anything you might face out there. And that's, and so that is going to be, there are going to be people in the real world who do not care that you're uh, trying to stay away from drugs and alcohol or who do not care that your goal is to remain clean and sober and to live a different way. Uh, that is not going to be their priority. And so to, I always try and sell to the clients that you want to go through everything humanly possible you can while you're in here, even if it doesn't feel good, even if it's not ideal, uh, even if it feels wrong on some level uh, to have to deal with folks who are still attempting to scheme and to scam and to get over. You want to deal with as much as humanly possible in here that is relatable to the real world. So you've already had those tests, so to speak, and developed a set of skills to overcome that because you're certainly going to experience that when you leave here. Yep. That is certainly the case. <clears throat> certainly the case. And just to wrap up, um, <laughs> I was thinking about uh, the group that we probably spent the most time with in terms of identifying for them speaking about this subject, and that was the adolescents. Mm-hmm. Because uh, I don't know any of any age group that's more susceptible, susceptible to and exposed to peer pressure more than them. Oh, no, that is definitely so, the group. So not only were they dealing with the peer pressures of just being an adolescent, being a teenager, 16, 17, 15, 16, 17 years old, so all the peer pressures that come with in whichever side of the aisle they may fall on, positive or negative. And then the peer pressures that have been created by just by mere fact of their presence in the program. And, you know, who's about their recovery and who's about gaming, you know, gaming the system and who's about, you know, trying to get over on their social worker so they can get out, you know, mm-hmm. who, who's about what and who is susceptible to what particular pressure. And we use the term, and so the term is peer pressure, but for the adolescent, there's so many different pressures that fall underneath that that are created by their peers. So, I mean, all in all, I mean, I don't think it got tough for us until 2000, I want to say 2005. Okay. So let's say that last 10-year period, 
I try not to remember uh, some of those years, but yeah, uh-huh. go ahead. <laughs> oh goodness, that's funny. Um, yeah, I don't. I don't think your therapist would recommend it as a part of your mental well-being. <laughs> yeah, absolutely not. If, if we want, if we want to maintain our 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 our, our health and well-being, but you know, they were an absolute. Uh, if you if you wanted to def, if you wanted to take a snapshot of a group that brought all of that to the table it would have been that group or all, all of them that went through in that ten year period um, and obviously we're not them we're not in their age group and all that stuff, but it just must just like, for this is from outside looking in it just must have been an interesting experience for them because we always used to say we would say this to the parents we would say this to the p o social workers county, anyone who would ask, or who wouldn't ask, we would tell them, we can do our best to help this person, this young person, with their drug problem, with whatever other issues, related or unrelated, that they may have, behavioral problems, problems with authority, etc., etc. We can help with that. The one thing we cannot help them with the one thing that there is no known cure to mankind of for and that's their adolescence they just Mm -hmm. have to experience they just have to experience that that's right and I think that little piece was lost on a lot of the powers that be because it seemed as if that they w- not um, directly, but almost indirectly, wanted to charge us with the task of helping them with their adolescence. And your adolescence is something you just have to live and experience. There's no help for it, quote unquote. You just have right. to be in it and experience it. And all that comes with it. And our job was just to understand what was just normal adolescent behavior and what was not. <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. Um, and then connected to that was, okay, we, we know that just being a normal teenager, there's going to be normal teenage-related peer pressures. So those we just put to the side. We want to just deal with the peer pressures that have to deal with or that surround whether or not this person is going to make a good decision regarding their substance abuse and recovery or a bad decision regarding that. But whether or not they have hair on their face, whether or not they know how to launder their clothes and all that stuff, no. I mean, we'll teach them that stuff, but... Um, we can't we can't help them with the the, the peer pressures regarding that. Mm-hmm. And the other you know silly peer pressures that teenagers go through, they just kind of go through it. I'm sure that was long and complicated. No, that makes but. sense. That makes full sense. So we're saying all that to say. Stay on the positive side of the fence. <laughs> That's right. And don't and don't get poached. 
<laughs> That's right. Stay strong. Watch your, watch your back. Don't get poached by the lion. We're just kidding. All right, sir. That's all I got. I'm about my my throat's about to give out. Wow, I, I need a break. Water break too. Okay, uh, well, I'm gonna say yeah. before we let you off the air because we're about to close this topic. I do. Uh, for the purposes of having you on the air, want to get you on record because, as the whole audience knows at this point, uh, you are a huge aviation enthusiast, and there is a lot of talk in the news about all these recent complications that have taken place while uh, landing at SFO. And I want to get your thoughts as to what you think is behind this because it's now being federally investigated. Okay, switching topics. Now you got me really excited. Yeah, you see? Well, for our listeners who don't know, if you're ever flying to San Francisco International Airport, it's a, especially during the day, it's a beautiful approach because you're coming down the bay. You approach from the coast of California. No matter where you're coming from, you're going to come by the coast. And it's going to make a left or right turn, depending on which side you're coming from, and to line because they line up and come straight down the gut of the bay, over the two bridges, the Dumbarton Bridge, San Mateo Bridge, and got a runway on the left, a runway on the right. And all of us who live here, obviously, and drive on the highway, the, the Highway 101, um, it's nothing to see the two planes landing at the same, you know, coming in at the same time. And, you know, sometimes, you know, just through optical illusions, they look like they're on top of each other, behind each other, under each other. And in truth, they're just, they're, you know, side by side, but hundreds of feet, if not more, apart. Sure. So it's just an optical illusion as you're driving on the highway. But the pilots, obviously, it's coming down two parallel runways. During the day, it's no problem. It's at night. And uh, some of them, I, I don't know if you're talking about the Air Canada incident where the guy was lining, coming into land and he was lined up over the wrong runway. Not only over the wrong runway, but he was lined up on the taxiway. And the tower kept on telling him, dude, you're, you're, not, you're not lined up. You're not right. lined up. You're not lined up. Pull up. Go around. Pull up. Go around. And it was only at the very last minute when the other planes that were sitting on the taxiway waiting to take off said, this guy's coming right at us. This guy's coming right at us that they finally got this guy on the, you know, to respond and pull up. And he flew right over them. Yeah, well, that incidents, was two incidents oh, go with ahead. Canada. So they're, one, trying to figure out what the hell is going on with Air Canada. Mind you, I flew Air Canada, wonderful airline. Yeah. So they're trying to figure out what the hell is going on with Air Canada. And then looking at these two incidents occurred at night and over the same runway. So it would be runway 28 or two right. Whatever the number is, it's the right one. Um, it's, it's, a, it's a puzzle. They can't... It, one, they can't. I, 
obviously they haven't publicized because I'd be wanting to know why the hell wasn't the pilot responding? And they said that the pilot said this is all third-hand information, of course. I haven't I haven't got my investigators on the ground yet. Uh, that there was a problem with their radio. Well, other pilots have said BS. BS. So there's no way, or with all the radios they have on board, UHF, VHF, XYZ, all kinds of radios, it's just in case something <laughs> sure. happens, right? And, and mind you, you're not over the middle of the Pacific, right? You're coming into land, right? So if there's going to be any place that you're going to have access to radio waves, it's near the airport. So I'm sure that was, I don't know what the hell was going on with those guys, but it just makes you think, man. <laughs> Yeah, well, what they, so what they did say, I'm sorry, what they did say, this is the, the FAA, whatever, or the NTSB, whoever's investigating it, that they do know there's an issue at this airport with landing at night on the two runways and that pi- pilots can, can easily get visually confused. Us as lay people, I have no idea how experienced pilots can get visually uh, confused. That's quite scary to hear, okay, <laughs> because usually... The runway lights are colored differently from the taxiway lights and from other lights. So sure. I'm, I'm just saying. Go ahead. Well, yeah, no. It, so in addition to what you're saying, and so I'm not sure I was going to, when my wife told me and she said, send this to Orville, because every time my wife keeps up with the news diligently, and every time something about a plane crash anywhere in the world or a plane mishap or something comes up, she sends it to me and says, send this to Orville right away. She, uh, she wants you to be in the know because she likes to get your feedback about this because she knows you're into the planes. Well, so she in addition to, get my to what investigators on the ground. That's right. Uh, so, no, just about a week ago or a week and a half ago, I can send you the article, a similar issue with landing where a pilot was about to land on the, ro- the, the wrong of the two runways, uh, Air Mexico this time. Uh, about a week or a week and a half ago. And so they had said on Fox News, this is like three of the same incident within the past four months. And that's why there's now going to be some sort of wait a minute, large wait a minute, investigation wait a as a result. Wait a minute. We know what happened with Air Mexico. It was no how blame uh, <laughs> <laughs> Right? Right? Exactly. Exactly. Uh yeah, no, when she sent me the article and they may, you know, they were talking about now how many times this has happened and as to the why. Um, yeah, so this is recent, more recent than the ones that you're talking about. Um, so that's why I wanted to get your, your take on it. Well, yep. I'm, I'm waiting to hear what, what, what the hell their excuse is. But I won't be surprised if they come back. I mean, other than they won't let us know what, you know, like how they really screwed up, but but I'm sure that it's something with the airport itself. Even though other pilots are saying, I've been landing there for 25 years, I haven't had a problem at night. Yeah, it said Air, Air Mexico plane nearly lands on wrong runway in third close call for SFO within the past six months. Yeah, the other two were Air Canada. Yeah. So they're uh, and they says at one of the nation's busiest airports or whatever. So anyway, interesting, but wanted yep. to get your take live official for the record. So we ready? Uh, take a quick commercial break and come back and get to some of these callers we've got on hold. Yep. 
All right, great. Uh, we do see that we have a couple callers on hold who want to participate in the recovery support time segment. Uh, we do appreciate your patience and also hope that you have enjoyed the show and its information to this point. We will get to you all on the other side. We're going to take a quick music break and uh, we'll be right back.
Coming up next is OCG Radio's Recovery Support Time, where our hosts provide support and guidance for your recovery-related questions and issues. Recovery Support Time, where it's our time to help you. How long they spend in 
a particular modality, whether they spend more time in residential or more time in outpatient, that depends on what's available. But whatever it is, they should be exposed to treatment for at least one year. That's, that's what has uh, shown to be the most effective. Okay, thank you. Right, you're welcome. Have it. Hello? All right, we got you. Hello? I, I think, yeah. call, <laughs> I'm not sure. I think <laughs> I think that caller dropped off. But uh, interesting question about the the length or the time, right? In your uh, mm-hmm. the context with which you responded about the current format, right? Because a lot of that is driven by funding. But definitely, the longer someone has been addicted, or, or the amount of time someone has been addicted, is a good barometer. Um, because, yeah, it's very, very individualized to, to put some sort of arbitrary time and say, this is the amount of time that is most effective for anybody who's coming into your facility. Um, you know, that is a recipe for disaster. And on top of that, uh, you know, that could be in, in reverse, too. So a lot of the time folks consider the amount of time and how long it's going to take for somebody to get help. The thought is always that there's not enough time, which, you know, the thought is that because generally speaking, that is the situation that we're dealt with. We don't have enough time or as much time as we would like to help some individuals out. But to say, like put the stamp of one year on it, that might also be too much time for an individual contingent upon what they're presenting when they come in. Mm -hmm. Yep. So, Definitely individualized. Yep. Um, and also, at the very least, we know that uh, all, all the studies say that persons with long-term substance abuse histories, their outcomes are much better when they're exposed to treatment longer, especially re- a residential um, experience longer. Um, so with that, Let's move to our next call, and then we'll hit the X-Files. Um, this is Alex from Pacifica. Welcome to the show. How's it going? Good. So my question is, how do I cope with family issues and resentments from my mother being an addict, alcoholic my whole life? How old are you? I'm 23 years old. Is that situation with, you said your mother? Yes, sir. Okay. And is that situation still the same currently? Yes. Uh, we do. We have, it's a toxic relationship. I don't talk to her. But um, okay. she tried contacting me the other day, and it really uh, upset me. Okay. So can you just say in a couple of sentences, well, let me rephrase that. Is it safe to presume that your mother was an addict while you went through your adolescent and teenage years and all that stuff? Yes, absolutely. Okay, okay. 
you can you only actually have two choices. And mm-hmm. to believe it or not, it's they're not even it's one of them is not even an option. That's that's a cold hard reality. And I'm going to circle yeah. back to that, so don't forget that I said it. One of them is not really an option. Okay? Mm-hmm. So we'll leave that one to the side. What, I, what, what most people tell you is your, is your only real option is you've got to forgive her. Yeah. And what is the other you know, option? Oh, the other option is to just continue to go as you've been going and see what happens. That's not an option. Yeah, you're right. So, I want you to listen real carefully. Okay. People spend a lot of money and a lot of time trying to wrap their arms around this issue that you described. A lot of money and a lot of time. Yeah. And they always come back to the same place. The same, the, the same thing always has to be done. It's inescapable. Even phrased in your question, how do I get past the experiences that I've had with my mother being an addict? And even as how it troubles me to this day, even if she calls me, it bothers me. Yeah. If I hear her voice, it bothers me. I'll just easily say to you, and then briefly spend some time telling you a couple of things that you could take with you to practice. I'll just easily say to you, like I said, the answer is, the answer lies in you forgiving her. That's where your peace comes from. I hear you. It's definitely going to be tough, but so, it will be a relief. So, so the question I have for you then is, why is it going to be tough? Um, I, just because she won't get help and she's admitted she has a problem but will not do nothing about it what what, ha- what about you yeah I mean I guess it won't be that tough it'll just be for me you know to forgive no, her no no what I that. mean what I mean what I mean is <clears throat> yes what you said is absolutely true you're for lack of a better term, and I don't mean this in a religious context whatsoever, your salvation lies in your ability to understand the concept of forgiveness and execute it. And so what you need to answer within yourself, so this is like a homework assignment for you, mm-hmm. is... What's, what are the reasons that I have, and you can even write them down when you have this conversation with yourself, that I don't want to forgive my mother? 
Could you say that again? You want to write down the reasons why you don't want to forgive your mother. Okay. I can do that. Because these are the things that contribute to making it difficult. When you're done writing those down and you read them back to yourself, each one of those reasons has to be dealt with. Ultimately, you're going to have to forgive your mother because you won't get any peace until you do. I hear you. And I guess let me leave you with this. Go ahead. No, I is you know I I don't want to talk to her and I I don't want to I I completely agree it will be freeing for me to forgive her because I was I'm an addict myself and you know I didn't want to do what I was doing for a long time but I did and she's. She's, you know, she's suffering from the same disease I have suffered from for a long time. So I do what feel will you for be giving her, up? but... What will you be giving nothing. up? Nothing. If you forgive her. No, you are giving something. I'm giving up a lot of pent-up negative energy and resentment. I, uh, I like that one. I like that resentment one. That's a powerful one. Yeah. I agree. Okay. Think about this. When you forgive, when you know you have truly forgiven your mother in a spiritual sense, not a religious sense, a spiritual sense, you have truly forgiven her when you no longer use the things that you, that up, about her that upset you as a weapon against her. So whatever she's done, whatever she's doing, all of those things are no longer used against her by you. You just you you understand them, you accept them as the current reality. Doesn't mean it's gonna be the future reality, but as it right at this moment, this is where she is. The things that occurred in the past, I have to resolve those. Yeah. I can't I can't continue to either figuratively or literally be her over the head with what she what she did and not being there and being an addict and all of those things. I can't continue to beat her up with that because, by the way, every time you throw that whip, okay, mm-hmm. the body of it catches her and the end of it comes around and hits you. Hits me, yeah. You got to give up that control. That's what forgiveness is about, giving up the control. That's where the problem is. We'll leave you with that, okay? Thank you so much. You're very welcome. It's very helpful. All right. Bye-bye. See you. Mr. Producer, how are we on time? Yes. We're good. We got about 
10 to 12 minutes to ride here. Okay. So uh, maybe in, you know, 10, 15 years, you know, something will be uh, engineered where we get a call and we want to just link them right over to a show that we did five years ago. Yeah, right? Exactly. <laughs> Listen to this 10 minute, 10 minute part right here. Yeah. Cause that we, we did a show touching on almost exactly that and resentment and that little bit of the family dynamic there. And it's really interesting. The longer we do this show, go ahead. But here's the thing. And you'll probably get me to just touch on the same thing. You know, there's a lot of topics, but um, like a person emailed me over the weekend saying that, you know, they started listening to the podcast and, you know, they said they were amazing and blah, blah, blah. But I have no idea where they picked up at. Right, right. I have no idea where they picked up at. And so, you know, we have this struggle, you know, back and forth in terms of, okay, should we do this topic over? And, you know, you know, we did this in 2015. Should we do it again? So on and so forth. Because um, even though it may exist, you know, out in the realms, the ether world, um, and now that we, you know, periodically uh, live stream into the facilities, you know, they the, the current clients have no access to go online or anything like that to listen. I right. mean, they can just hear the live stream, but um, uh, the the topics is what I mean. They don't have access to go back into the library and listen to the topics. Um, so some of them we'll have to do over, like the one on forgiveness, because that's a deep topic. Um, it's a lot of energy to do that topic, too. <laughs> right. Yeah, I'm right. Always, always exhausted after that one. <laughs> very true, but, very true. What I what I but, myself was going to touch on, go ahead, go ahead. No, no, go ahead. Uh, was, it's interesting, the longer we do the show, although uh, I see it having worked in this field for as long as I've worked in this field, to get both sides of the coin, right? So we have had the mother or the father call call in to the show um, and have the dilemma from the other end. Like, I know I have not been a good parent or have been an absent parent. And, um, you know, how do I how do I go about rekindling that relationship? And, and how do I go about reestablishing trust and what can I do? And now some of these have been parents of very young children, and some of them have been parents of children who are now adults. Um, but we've gotten the call from the parent, and we've gotten it from that end or that scope or that perspective, and then getting the call from the child, right, about uh, kind of like we just did here. And it's interesting to see to see both sides of the coin anyway. I mean, we've done kind of a whole show on it, and ultimately, um, as as we know, having worked in the field, and I'm sure – as people just generally speaking in society know or get it, that the ultimate responsibility, of course, lies on the parent. But interesting to see the dynamic from both ends. Yeah. Um, obviously, we didn't have all the time in the world to spend with that particular caller, but um, one thing is certain, and this applies to anybody, by the way, anybody, that when there's an experience like that, you speak from the perspective of the child, which is what he was doing. Um, 
even though he's a he's a grown grown adult. Um, mm-hmm. But the experience is from the child, you know, from from when he was young. Right. And that 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 has to be spoken to, looked at, addressed, and resolved, so that he can move out of that um, emotionally. Okay. Because that's where we, a lot of us we get stuck emotionally. There, you know, we might be you know grown adults and thinking as adults most of the time, but emotionally we get stuck back there um, until those things get resolved or you know addressed. That's where we stay, and boy, do they leak out <laughs> and and manifest themselves in ways that just aren't healthy. Evidenced by you know his mother was an addict. And he himself has gone down that road. Um, so some things have to be looked through, looked at through an adult lens, and some things you have to look at through the lens that, that the person, as a young person, would be looking at it towards their parent. Um, and regardless of which side it comes from, like you said, we've dealt with the parent, we've dealt with the child. In the end. Forgiveness is what has to reign. If I'm the parent, I have to forgive myself for what I've done um, and, and not done. Um, and if I'm the child, I have to learn to forgive my parent for what they've done or not done. Um, forgiveness has to be the key. Ultimately, that's where you have to get to. I mean, people go through, you know, therapy for years and years and years and all over the place and, you know, whatever. And, you know, just talk around it. I want to let go of that control. You know, if I hold on to this, I can, I can use it whenever I need to. Well, you weren't there for me when I was younger. You can use it as a whip. Right, right. Or, or the flip side, I'm the parent, you know, I'm never wanting to forgive myself, always beating myself up with it. I wasn't there for my children. I should have been there. I should have never gotten involved in drugs. I was a terrible parent. You know, always beating yourself up. And as a result, when you beat yourself up, what do you do? You feel bad. Play the you victim. Feel bad. What do you, and then when you feel bad, no one likes to feel bad. So what do you want to do? You want to feel good. And what's that going to lead you to? So it's this mm-hmm. whole cycle. Right. You don't want to forgive yourself. Well, why do you don't want to forgive yourself? Oh, you want to continue to use it as a as, as a whip. Absolutely so you can right. Use it as a whip against the other person, or use it as a you know self a self whip. Uh, maybe maybe that's a good uh, something to develop a self whipping tool. There you go. <laughs> but all right, let's get to our next caller. We run out of time. Flapping our gums. This is Joe calling from Florida. Joe, welcome to the show. Hello. Hello. Welcome to the show. This is Joe from Florida. Hi. How can we help you? Hi. How are you? Good. Yeah. How can I, how can recovery help me when I have cravings? How can recovery help you? Yeah, when I have grieving. How can recovery help me when I have grieving? 
you have to find out what's the source of the cravings. Uh, alcohol. No, no, not not what you're craving. What's the source? Pardon? Meaning, what you, not, you you have to find out. Mm-hmm. Not what what it's not what you are craving, right? Uh-huh. You have to ask yourself, mm-hmm. what is it that is causing the craving? I see. So you usually, when a person is experiencing cravings for something, like drugs or alcohol, okay, mm-hmm. it's either because they have recently stopped using. Mm-hmm. And this is just what the mind and the body knows, so it takes some time. Mm-hmm. Or if the cravings are coming after a period of time of being off of the drugs and alcohol, more often than not, it's something at the root of the craving. So something mm-hmm. that the person is either not talking about or they're trying to avoid. Mm-hmm. And they're not sharing it and, and being open about it and so on and so forth. You understand that? Yes, sir. Yes. Right. So that's the fir- you first ask yourself, what is it that I'm not talking about? What is it that I'm not sharing? I see. Yes. Okay? Yeah, thank you so much for your time and You're patience. very welcome. Yeah, thank bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Mr. Producer, is that your mic or my mic? I'm not hearing what it is you're referencing, so possibly yours? I don't hear it now. Okay. Every now and then, I it it, it sounds like, um, um, how would you describe it? Almost wind noise, like, uh, you know... Breathing, but very huh. mag, you know, mag- magnified. Wow, yeah, I'm not picking up on that. I, I, over I here. Don't, and, and again, I don't. I, it might be because of the volume in the headset, and and I have to figure out how to turn it down. Could be. And, and what be. Are your? I don't, I don't know. In your family, said uh, you're dealing with the Spanish flu or something crazy like that. So, uh, you know, who knows? Maybe you're hearing things now. The, the Australian. <laughs> Call it the Australian flu. It's supposed to be uh, some new, crazy, weird, super, super, super strong strain. Yes, did you did did you remind them that there is no strain uh, that has met the match of the Jamaican immune system? Not only did I remind them of that, I said <laughs> the the, guil- the guilty parties are in this house, and they shall be br- brought to the floor in due time. <laughs> yes. Good. Well done. Well done. Yeah, cravings, huh? Cravings. That's, uh, I mean, that is the ABCs of recovery right there. Get to well, the root. Why? What? How is it that you feel or what is it that you're feeling that's creating cravings in the first place? And let's address the root instead of, uh, like, you know, he mentioned alcohol and you clarified not what exactly it is you're craving, but but why you're craving or what's behind that. That's always, that's always step one. Right. Now, sometimes identifying it is easier than actually figuring out now that I've identified it, how do I cope with it? But 
still starts with identification. Well, there there is a little bit of discipline involved. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Um, at at some point, especially after the you know, if there are any physical uh, uh, issues, once all of those things subside and time has passed and the body has had a, a you know time to you know recover and and start to get itself back. We're just now with the psychological aspect of the cravings. Um, right. It's no different than someone who stops smoking cigarettes. And you know, after that seven to 10 day period, the body is no longer craving the nicotine. And so it's yep. really the, the, the psychological and the habitual. Addiction. That's right. It's all upstairs um, after that. Right. Um, or the repetitive nature of the, of the, of the addiction. So, you know, people who smoke when they get in the car or smoke when they, as soon as they pick up a phone or, you know, something like, you know, things that you don't even realize you do when you smoke um, and when, you know, that you light a cigarette every time you do this. Right. So yep. becoming aware of those things and, you know, counter, counteracting them. Um, but it applies regardless of whatever the, the craving is for. Sure. Absolutely. I'll give you, like I'll give you an example. How much, time, how much time do we have? Do we still have time for that uh, last call? No, absolutely not. I'm about to cut you off, in fact. How much time, how much time do I have? You have negative uh, 47 seconds. I was, oh, okay. I was to cut right. you off about I'll, a minute ago. I'll save what I'm about to save for our next show. <laughs> all right, perfect. Perfect, perfect. Well, I think it was, a, although it was a bumpy start getting on air, I think uh, the show went well once we did get on air. So I think it was a great start to 2018. Uh, many more shows to come. We love doing the show and look forward to another full year of our Rochon Recovery. Uh, with that said, we are going to bid everybody adieu, wish everybody a productive and safe couple of weeks, fun couple of weekends, and we will catch you all on the other side.
And walk amongst the stars at night I'd like to know the taste of honey in my life In my life Well, I've shared so many pains And I've played so many games Someday 
That's our show for this evening. Thank you for listening. Be sure to listen to our next broadcast Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time on blogtalkradio.com forward slash OCG Radio. Like us, friend us, and follow us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash OCGWorkCA and on Twitter at OCGWorkCA. You can listen to podcasts of all our shows on iTunes under Roach on Recovery or on our Blog Talk Radio homepage. This has been a presentation of OCG Recovery Radio. Until then, baby, are you good?